This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. And invite you to grab your Bible uh, or the pew Bibles in front of you and turn to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be starting there this morning. We're going to be looking at our gospel lectionary passage. It's on page 872 in your pew Bible. So go ahead and turn there now. And as you're turning there, I'd like to start this morning with a confession. Um, It's a little embarrassing as a pastor, but here it goes. Lent is not my favorite season. I know it is for several people. I know the music is beautiful, Uh, but people have often come up to me and said, I love Lent. Don't you just love Lent? And the challenge for me is I really, really like to have fun. And a somber season of repentance isn't always fun. I will say, oh, well, to the point that um, I often come home and there's a conversation like this that happens in our house. Jenna says to me, how was your day? And I say, it just wasn't that fun. And then she'll say, you know, Steve, not everything in life can be measured by how fun it is. And she's right. I recognize this as a fault of mine. I'm confessing it to you. I I will say that over the years, I have learned that although I might not always love Lent, I know that I need Lent. There's this line in our Ash Wednesday liturgy that says, It reminds us that we all have the need, all Christians, to continually have a season to renew our repentance and faith. So here we are. We're in the third Sunday of Lent. Ash Wednesday's two and a half weeks behind us. Palm Sunday's still three weeks ahead. How are you doing? If you're like me, you've caught yourself already dreaming about jelly beans because jelly beans are delicious, and they're fun. But I want to invite you this morning that even if so far in Lent it's been hard and you don't feel like you've been fully engaged, there's a benefit to the fact that it's 40 days, that there's six Sundays in Lent, because there's this continual opportunity to rejoin the church on her Lenten journey. In fact, One of the challenges, and I guess you might say benefits, of preaching in the season of Lent is that there's a similar theme week after week after week. Last week, Father Matt preached on the theme of repentance. I'm pretty sure, based on the passage, next week Deacon Margie will be preaching on repentance. And our passage this morning from the beginning of Luke 13 is on, you guessed it, repentance. So here we go. Now, Father Matt mentioned last week that Jesus' teaching on repentance can feel like a hard word. And I think if you look at our passage this morning, if you heard it read, it also seems like a really hard word. It's also, frankly, a little weird and difficult to understand. So we're going to have to do some hard work of just making sense of the passage. First, you've got this kind of gruesome and creepy image of Pilate mingling the blood of the Galileans with sacrifices. Then you have another story about a tower falling on 18 people and killing them. So one challenge is just understanding these stories. And then the next one is making sense of Jesus' interpretation. 
Repent or perish, he says, twice. It's stark. It's stern. It raises fundamental fears we all have about death and about salvation. And it feels like it shines this light on the darkest places in our souls. But the message of repentance cannot be avoided if we want to be followers of Jesus because it's such a repeated and central theme of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. Jesus actually begins his ministry by declaring, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus teaches that repentance, the process of recognizing our own sin, turning away from it and back towards him, that this is a fundamental and regular part of the life of his followers. So we have to grapple with the fact that these hard teachings on repentance are central to the gospel, to the good news. And I do think that there's good news in our passage today. I guess my sermon title kind of gives that away. You see, repentance is meant to bear fruit. Jesus' call to repentance is not just a warning to avoid perishing, although it is that, but it's also an invitation to flourish, to cultivate a life of repentance that bears fruit for the kingdom of God. I think that we see in this pairing of the story at the beginning and the passage about the fig tree that that is Jesus' heart. Do you remember what John the Baptist said? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So do you want to live a fruitful life? Do you, want to pair, do you want to flourish? Then let's step back into our Lenten journey together and back into Jesus' teaching on repentance. I think the first thing we have to do is do some unpacking of this first story we see here at the beginning of chapter 13. So let's start there in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, so right off the bat, let's address the whole Pilate mingling blood thing. This kind of strange and disturbing image is almost certainly a metaphor. What likely had happened was that a group of Galileans had been in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in accordance with the Jewish law. Possibly this happened uh, during the previous year's Passover. And many commentators think that they might have been members of a Jewish sect that the Romans considered to be some kind of threat. In any case, Pilate seems to have chosen to make an example of these Galileans by having them executed. In other words, their blood was spilled on the same occasion as the blood of their sacrifices. There's plenty of historical evidence outside of Scripture that supports how ruthless Pilate was and how quick he was to crush any perceived rebellions that arose among the Jewish people. 
So it's not surprising, actually, that Luke would have a metaphor for what probably wasn't a standalone occurrence. Okay, the second thing, let's just zoom out for a minute and ask where we are in the overall gospel narrative. So this story here in chapter 13 comes in the middle of a really long section that begins way back in chapter 9. Luke 9.51 says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so for the next several chapters, Jesus is making his way with his followers from way up north in Galilee, down through Samaria, and into Judea on his way to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And at this point in the story, Jesus and his followers, they're getting really close to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. And at this Passover, Pilate will once again, if you will, mingle the blood of a Galilean with the sacrifices. And this time, he will unwittingly participate in the full and final sacrifice of the true, perfect, and spotless Lamb of God. And Jesus knows this. And he's not walking away from it. He's intentionally walking towards it. So as Father Matt mentioned last week, the cross overshadows these stories. Okay, so imagine then that you're one of Jesus' followers. Perhaps you're one of his disciples. You are a Galilean. And you've been on this long journey all the way to Jerusalem for the Passover where you, too, will offer sacrifices. And you're with Jesus who many are wondering if he's the promised Messiah, the true king of Israel. And that's a rumor that won't sit well with Pilate. And then you hear someone share this story with Jesus about these Galileans who were a threat to Pilate. And in that context, doesn't it seem like there might be an implied question behind the story that's told? Sort of like, Jesus... Isn't the same thing going to happen to you and your followers? So what might be going through your mind as a follower of Jesus? Do you think perhaps that your trust in Jesus at that moment feels a little bit shaky? Does he know what he's doing? Or do you think that you might be hoping that Jesus is about to clarify how that situation was nothing like this one? How those Galileans were totally different than Jesus and his followers. You might remember that the Jewish people of Jesus' day commonly believed that a physical disaster was a punishment for sin. There was this one time when Jesus' disciples encountered a man born blind and they said to him, Who sinned, this man or his parents? So hearing this story had to shake Jesus' followers. And I'm sure they were hoping that Jesus would explain how different their situation was from those other Galileans. But that's not at all what Jesus does. Verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, 
I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And just to make sure his listeners from Judea don't think he's just talking about the Galileans, Jesus gives another example in verse 4 of a catastrophe that happened to people in Jerusalem. And then he doubles down with the exact same words again in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You all, everybody, nobody is exempt. It isn't enough to make the claim that you're an Israelite and part of God's chosen nation. It isn't enough to simply hang around Jesus, claim to be a follower of him, claim a general association with him. You are no better than these people who suffered. You are all sinners. You all need to repent. You all need to acknowledge your sin, turn away from it, and turn towards Jesus, or you too will perish. There's no distinction made. Jesus refuses to classify anybody as a worse sinner. No one is off the hook. The word there for perish, it can also mean to be lost or to be cut off. And remember that the cross overshadows this moment. So Jesus' concern is not so much at this moment about death, but about being lost and cut off from God. And there's only one way for anyone to avoid that, to recognize their own sin, to repent and turn to Jesus. Okay, so at, at this point, I think we can start to relate to this story and to Jesus' followers a little more. Because do you ever find yourself in a place where your trust in Jesus is getting a little shaky, where you wonder if he knows what he's doing. And what you're hoping for is that he's going to give you some immediate assurances. Do you ever find yourself, when you're in a stressful or difficult situation, attempting to distinguish yourself from others, instead of perhaps addressing your own need to repent? Sort of like, Okay, I know I'm not perfect, but my goodness, surely Jesus sees what a mess this person made of this situation. I know I've certainly gone down that road. And Jesus' stern but loving word is, do you think that they're a greater sinner? No, but I tell you, Steve, repent. The Lord does not want us to become complacent or to have our eyes fixed on others, but on him. And so again and again and again, he calls us to repentance. And it can feel like such a stern word, but it's also a loving word that we do need continually. So as we turn to the parable of the fig tree, I think we see that it's out of Jesus' love for us and his desire for our good, for our flourishing, that he calls us to repentance. So let's look at this parable. 
So then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So some people see Jesus in this parable as the man who owns the vineyard, and that the three years he's been coming to look for the fruit parallel the three years of Jesus' ministry. Others see Jesus as the vine dresser, digging and putting in the rich soil of the gospel with the hopes that the tree will respond and start producing fruit. I think, since it's a parable, we can hold loosely to both ideas. But what we can certainly see clearly is the heart of Jesus for his people. The the parable has the same warning that Jesus just gave in the story. Repent or perish. In this case, literally be cut off or cut down. But let's dig in for a moment, pun intended, and notice a few things. First, notice that the vine dresser is putting forth effort to save the tree. He's digging up the ground. He's putting down rich soil. He doesn't want the tree to be cut down. He's trying, in fact, to help it flourish. Also, notice the patience. The owner of the vineyard comes, right? And he's expecting fruit. So that indicates that this this is not a brand new fig tree. It takes several years before a tree would be expected to produce fruit. But it should be mature enough for that at this point. And for the last three years, the owner has been coming, expecting the tree to produce fruit. And then notice that the vine dresser still asks for yet more time, hoping that the tree will mature and still start producing fruit. He wants the tree to be fruitful. The goal is for it to flourish and start producing fruit. So, have you seen these same qualities of Jesus on display in any way in your own life? Have you ever seen the effort that he's putting forth on your behalf? Can you see his consistent call to you to repent? Do you see his own sacrifice on your behalf that you might not only live, but flourish? Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Can you also see Jesus' patience with you? His willingness to keep warning you, keep speaking to you, keep pursuing you, even when the growth seems slow or even sometimes non-existent. Jesus doesn't see repentance simply as a way to avoid perishing. He sees a life of repentance as the way for you to flourish 
and to bear fruit. Okay, so I want to talk just for the last few minutes here specifically about cultivating the fruit of repentance and what that might look like. If you go on a search in the Bible for fruit, you're going to wind up pretty soon in Galatians chapter 5, the famous fruits of the Spirit passage. So I want to invite you here at the end to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. It's on page 975 in your pew Bible. But before we get to those famous fruits of the Spirit, uh, let's start a few verses before, back in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. So here's the first thing I want to do. I want to ask you, does anything on that list jump out to you as a particular personal struggle? And if so, what would it look like to get really serious about repentance in that area? I think it's probably going to take more than just a quiet, private confession to the Lord. Victory is going to come by shining a light on that dark place. So what if you shine light by making a formal confession with a pastor? And then, at least in some cases, what if you worked with your pastor to get the support of an addictions group that can help you find greater, repent, greater freedom through repentance? In other cases, what if you found others who would help keep you accountable and support you by checking in with you regularly? Don't wait. Don't minimize. But start digging in and start cultivating real and deep repentance. But here's the second thing I want to do. Because maybe nothing on that list does jump out to you as a particular area of struggle. But I want to suggest to you that there's actually a real danger there. That we look at this list and we say, hey, I'm doing okay. And the danger is that we don't recognize our continued need for repentance, and then we stop growing. I don't want to stop growing in the Lord. I don't want my heart to harden I want it to stay soft. I want to keep cultivating repentance. I want to keep bearing fruit. So here's my challenge to you this morning, is to examine the status of the fruit in your life. I'm going to read these fruits of the Spirit there in verse 22. And as I do, I want you to consider what jumps out to you as the fruit that is most absent in your life. I had one uh, jump off the page as I did this exercise myself. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So what stood out to you as missing in your life? And what if you sought to cultivate that fruit through repentance this Lent? What if you brought that to a confession? And what if you shared why you think that fruit is absent in your life? What if you asked others to keep you accountable in building practices that cultivated that fruit of the Spirit? So I invite you to take this passage with you this week and continue to consider how the Lord might be calling you to cultivate more fruit through continued, ongoing repentance. Jesus' call to repentance, it certainly is a warning because he loves us and he does not want us to perish. But it also comes from his deep desire for us to continue to grow and to flourish. So this Lent, may we cultivate a deep life of repentance that we might bear abundant fruit to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.